Over the years, having been raised as I was in Tapuna, um, I used to bus into Boys College uh, five days a week, I suppose, and uh, many times I would see one of the uh, local, uh, not so much celebrities, but local well-known people, and that was Jack Shergold, who owned the Bethlehem Post Office, where the current jeweller is right now. And uh, I was good friends with his son, Mark, we used to play rugby together, and so we'd see, see Jack going backwards and forwards to his shop every morning, about the same time the bus was going through. And the reason why I remember that this time of the year is because um, uh, heaps of people used to take their mail and deliver it to the Bethlehem post office. And Jack used to have to employ extra people and pull out the extra rubber stamps just so that they could put the Bethlehem Star stamp on all the mail that was sent all places around the world. And uh, how many of you remember Jack? Oh, just, a, just a quick little survey here. I took his funeral a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, see, there's a few people around. I'm starting to feel really um, old. <laughs> yeah, Jack owned a car. He wasn't on a horse or anything like that. Um, yeah, we weren't quite that old. But anyway, today we're going to focus on Bethlehem. Of course, we are in Bethlehem, the place named after Bethlehem, the, uh, the, the place where Jesus was born in Israel. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of history out of the story of Bethlehem, because uh, Bethlehem wasn't just simply famous for its uh, arrival of Jesus. It was famous for its own reasons before that. So let me lead us in prayer. Father, we, um, we want to thank you for Christmas. We, as the church, want to own this season. We want to be able to speak into it, speak well of it, and own it for ourselves and our families. The fact that you still fit to send your son Jesus to a little town called Bethlehem. And in doing so, God, you set ablaze a fire that is, that is just continuing to increase around the world today. That God would love us enough to send his son, born of a virgin, born into humble circumstances, that this whole world might be changed through that child. And so, God, as we open up Scripture today, let us rediscover the magic, the beauty, and the brilliance of this story. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just to remind you of where Bethlehem is, uh, here we have Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. In modern-day Israel today, uh, Bethlehem is actually in the Palestinian area, so it's a little bit awkward to visit. The place is a bit of a shambles, from what I can understand. Um, but it's right there close to Jerusalem. And yet today, I'm going to take our story back to a thousand years, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, to help us picture what it was like in those days when the family of Bethlehem, just like I mentioned before, where the Shergold family owned the block of shops in Bethlehem, and that's pretty much all Bethlehem was. Uh, there was a household that essentially was the household of Bethlehem, and that was Jesse's household. Jesse had um, some rural farm thing going on because we know his boys used to go out and look after the sheep and the goats. And yet one day in Israel's history, Bethlehem became a place of God's focus. And God's focus was coming through a prophet by the name of Saul. Saul knew that he had to appoint a new king for Israel. And God told him to go to Bethlehem to go to Jesse's household, and there he was to consider Jesse's sons to see who it would be that would be this next king. 
And so here we have this great story, a lot of anticipation, a lot of drama in this story because G.C. introduces him to all of his sons. And as each one passes by, uh, Samuel's saying, no, no, this is not the one. Have you another son? No, no, this is not the one. And finally, there's no more sons to look at. And he asks the question of the family. He says, have you got any more children? Got any more boys in this case? Oh, yeah, we've got one, the youngest. He's out the back looking after the sheep. Oh, well, we'll stay here. We'll stand and we'll wait for him to turn up. And this fine little boy comes running through. His name's David. And right there and then, um, he is anointed by the prophet Samuel as the king. And so this story begins, and it begins something quite magical because we see how it is that our story of Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, is so aligned with this story because not only do we see Bethlehem being used, but what we are told later on is that this young man, David, his bloodline actually extends all the way through to Jesus. So this is a story that extends a thousand years of genealogy. Now, that's an amazing record in itself, isn't it? When we think of our own ability today with all the modern effort that we have to extend our own genealogy back a thousand years is a pretty hard thing to do. But here we have the beginning of something powerful. And powerful indeed it was, and powerful was young David. He was anointed for a task, and so therefore God went with him in every conceivable way. When David was called to go and fight Goliath, or when he offered to fight Goliath, uh, it only took him one stone to take the giant down. He then would lead the armies, and he'd always find victory. When he was asked to play the, uh, the harp and sing for the often angry Saul, who was the king at the time, he would do so, and he would soothe this wild man's passions to a point where he was calm. And so David was being used of God. And, and yet there came a time when David, now as the king, uh, was under pressure. And this story takes us to a, a cave, which is still there today, called the Cave of Adullam. The Cave of Adullam. And it's in a, in a very dry, deserted space. It's nothing exciting to go there for a holiday to do, nothing to do there except look at the desert. And, um, and yet we find a story starts here that takes us from this cave back into Bethlehem for something very significant that happens. And I want to take you to that place now from 2 Samuel chapter 23. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. It is, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Well, this is a, um, it's a fascinating story about friendship, mateship, loyalty, servanthood, and God being honored in the midst of it all. You can see that uh, the, the imagery here tells you that there's sort of this immediacy about what David is anticipating from a drink of water. And we get this idea that the cave of Adullam might be just down the hill or up the hill from, um, from Bethlehem. But 
the reality is it was 25 kilometers away. Okay, so when David was sitting there thinking about water, he would have been thinking of his youth. And I think we all do this, don't we? We think of times when, you know, we think of a particular beach or a particular lake or a particular river where we splashed around and enjoyed our summers. Have you got those memories, you folks? Some of you are still making those memories. I hope you're still enjoying that. Uh, for me, I've got those special places. But for David, he was thinking, you know, here I am in this, this cave. I'm thirsty. Oh, man, that water at the gate of Bethlehem used to taste so good when I was a kid. And you can see him just thinking about this, you know, just going, oh, yeah, man, that water was so sweet. And uh, sweet water was living water. Living water was a, a well that had a, literally had a river running underneath it. That was called living water. Dead water was when it was just a cistern that just allowed the water to leach up. So there was a difference between living water and dead water. This beautiful water from Bethlehem David was thinking about. But he also knew that the Philistines were camped there, their arch-mortal enemies. And so these three guys who turned up, Josh, uh, Eliezer, and Shammah, three of David's mighty warriors, just happened to be there at the time. And um, if they had come at this moment, they would have fixed my screens. Just died. We're back into life. Okay. And um, anyway, they must have given each other the nudge. You know what I mean by the nudge? It's like, hey, what do you reckon? Should we go get David some water out of Bethlehem? And they're like, nah, man, the Philistines are there. Ah, don't worry about the Philistines. We'll be right. And so these, uh, these mighty men, and this is a painting done about 100 years ago of some artist's impression of who they would have been. I reckon that's a good-looking impression. Don't you? And you can imagine them going there, 25 25 Ks, you know, it's like going from here to Katikati, or maybe here to, to Pukki, sort of, and that would have been quite a mission. They would have get on their donkeys or their camels or a walk, and, and, and they got there, and they said they broke through the lines of the Philistines. And so you can imagine them, these guys, back to back, you know, fighting off the Philistines and backing up to this uh, well, and one of them would have put the water uh, bag in, got the, uh, the goat skin filled with water, and then they would have been into it again and fought their way back out, and they go all the way back to the cave of Adullam, and they say, here you go, Master, we've got you some water from the well of Bethlehem. It's like, wow, that's so cool. It's a great story, eh? Great boy story anyway. And... Um, and then David looks at it, he must have been just totally overwhelmed. He was obviously moved by this emotionally, and he saw that his three friends would put their lives at risk to give him a drink of water. It's like, man, that's just, that's just so out there, eh? And David's looking at this water, looking at his friends, thinking of the story, probably heard what they had to do to get it, and he's going, I can't drink this. This water is now sacred. These guys got this at the risk of their lives. And he maybe took a step outside of the cave and holds it up. I'm just imagining, holds it up before God and says, God, for you and you alone. And he pulls that water out on the ground as a sacrifice. That's a beautiful picture of something really, really simple, isn't it? Really simple. But in that moment, that water became sacred water. That living water became something that was spilt out for God. Beautiful picture. And it happened a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And I'd just say to those mighty men, ko kue te tangata, ko kue te tangata, you are the man. 
That's what that means, okay? So you want to write that one down. Okay, ladies, when your husband's doing the dishes at Christmas Day, you just walk up to him and say, Ko koe te tangata. Eh? I know some of you might fall on your knees in wonder and amazement, but just say, Ko koe te tangata. You are the man. All right? You see, courage defined David's mighty men. And, uh, of course, for us, when we look at this story, a thousand years before Jesus was born, this courage seems to be something that is set into this area, something that's set into this township. Courage and humility. Can you see what's happening here? Courage and humility starts to become part of the, the fabric of this society, this little, little town. And a thousand years later, that same bloodline continues. And uh, now we pick it up to a story that we're very familiar, but I'm going to pick it up with three other people, three wise men, three wise warriors. Courage of a different quality, because what we're going to look at here is this story that we're so familiar with, but we're going to see it from the angle of what it is that God did and God is doing and God will do. And so let's have a look at this story. And what I've done is I've I've pulled the story out of Matthew's gospel apart a little bit, and I've taken just the texts that concern us with the, uh, with the wise men, and then we look at the, the context or the struggle, the political struggle, the military struggle, that these wise men had to contend with to be able to find themselves in a place to worship. All right? So Matthew chapter 2 says this, and incidentally, Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that records the story of the wise men, and I'll explain to you why soon. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, that's the wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's the beautiful part of the story, isn't it? Some wise men find a baby, humble themselves, and give the child gifts. But there's another story in the middle of the story. And this is what Matthew also records. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Then a few verses on. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, that's the Magi, returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
So we've got this story of worship and adoration happening. We've also got a story of, of uh, a despot leader in, he- in Herod wanting to make sure that no threat comes to his kingship, to his kingdom. And so what we do know, of course, is that he goes on to send his troops into the Bethlehem region to kill all the baby males under the age of two, just to make sure that he's cleaned out any possibility of a child being raised up in the fashion to, to threaten or challenge him. But as we see, God's given a dream to Joseph, and uh, he's taken Mary and Jesus off to Jerusalem. So what about our three wise men? Well, there's always been a lot of conjecture about who they were and where they came from because they sort of come out of nowhere. They're not talked about in scriptures and ways that we can understand. They're not talked about from an Old Testament perspective, so we don't really have a really good idea who they are. But what commentators and scholars have determined over the last couple of decades is every likelihood that these people were what we call Zoroastrians. Can we say that? Zoroastrians. I should have put the word up, but I didn't. Now, Zoroastrians got nothing to do with Zoro, okay, the Mexican guy who's got a sword, all right? So don't confuse that. But Zoroastrians are an ancient faith that go way back to about the same time as the Jews. And the Zoroastrians were people who would travel the earth as missionaries looking for wisdom. They were philosophers, they were priests, they were scholars, they were teachers. But as missionaries, they would go looking for truth and they would bring it back and they would discern and discuss and, and, and work through what it is that this world consisted of, what was the purpose of life. And so here they were existing at a similar time to the Jewish faith. You know, we're talking sort of 1,500, 2,000 years now of Jewish faith before Jesus was born. Now, to a Jewish audience, these folks would have been known. They would have been the people who we understand who are from another faith, but we give them great respect because they were peaceful people who were always looking for truth. And so what happens is Matthew, who's writing to the Jews, has this, has this um, a desire to express this part of the story. The other gospel writers don't see the need to do it, but Matthew wants to tell the Jews that the people of other faiths whom we respect saw what we've been looking for. They saw Jesus. They saw the Messiah. They too were looking for the Christ. And so we need to go back and say, how did this happen? Well, it said that they were from the east. So let's just put a little map up here. Here's Israel, okay? Joseph and Mary and Jesus shot through to Egypt after the angel warned them. And it said that these men were from the east. Now, what we do know is that modern-day sorry, modern day Iran or in Iraq, it's an area here, used to be Babylon, okay, known as Babylon. And some hundreds of years before this event, the nation of Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. All right, you with me? And there, the prophet Daniel, you can go into the Old Testament book and read from Daniel, there Daniel lived the majority of his life. And Daniel predicted and prophesied that a Messiah would come. And so the assumption can be easily made here, and it's only an assumption, that having read Daniel's writings, these folks anticipated when this Messiah would be born. And so therefore, the missionaries, the Zoroastrians, were sent on a mission 
And they went and discovered the star that they followed. And there, in the midst, in the middle of the whole Jewish empire, the Zoroastrians from another faith walked in to a stable and bowed before a baby and said, this is the one. That's a remarkable thing to do, isn't it? Because you couldn't go up to the child and go, excuse me, are you the Messiah? He's only just been born. Maybe that's why the scriptures tell us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, remembered all these things in her heart. She remembered when the angel came to speak to her about her conceiving a child. She remembered the angel going to her husband-to-be and saying, don't, um, don't discard this fiancé of yours. She remembered the shepherds coming in. All these things she remembered in her heart. Maybe that was to tell the story to these, these men of great faith who would then leave hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of goods at the, at the crib of this child and in their act of worship. So here we have two stories today, a thousand years apart. In the first story we saw, we saw warriors risk their reputation for water. You think about it. These three mighty warriors had been in many battles together, okay? They had forged their reputation as hardened soldiers. And now they're going to take that reputation at the risk of their life, and they're going to go and get some water. It's like, hey, those guys had a great life as soldiers. That was a stupid idea, go and get get David some water, and it might have cost them their lives. You see? So it was... It was a crazy thing to risk their reputation on. A thousand years later, these wise warriors, and I call them warriors because they had a battle of their own, risked their reputation on a baby. Now, I challenge you, go into Taronga Hospital tomorrow, find a child, bow down at its crib and say, this is the son of God. Okay? Does it sound crazy? It does, doesn't it? But you take three of the wisest people from a different faith, who take their whole reputation and humble themselves at the foot of a child and say, this is it, mate. We're putting all of our reputation on the fact that this child is the Christ. That's a huge step, isn't it? I don't know if I could... I can't really get my head around it. A thousand years apart, we had three warriors break down military boundaries, okay? They broke through the lines of the Philistines, A thousand years later, we had three wise warriors break through political manipulation. Herod wanted to find out who the king was. He said, come back and tell me who he is so I can worship him too. Yeah, right. You want to kill him. So their battle was similar but different, but potentially just as nasty. And as it happened, lots of male boys were killed. Don't get dirty. Yeah, male boys, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, A lot of little boys were killed as a result of Herod's hatred. Third thing, a thousand years apart, the warriors bring back water, and that water was made sacred. Of course, the wise warriors worship the water that was living. And we're told this, aren't we, time and time again throughout Scripture, that it's this living water that would bring life to us, that would quench the thirst that would always be met in Christ, a thirst that would never go away. 
And so we see these, these warriors coming together. And the biggest challenge for all of us is that for all of their strength and for all of their wisdom and for all of their courage, it was their humility that eternalizes them. And I say that word eternalize because those stories have been with us for thousands of years. And in the word, they'll be with us until the, until the beginning, from the beginning until the end of time. And through their humility. So there's something here in this soil at Bethlehem, isn't there? And this little town that we know today sits in the middle of a Palestinian conflict. But 2,000 years ago was the birthplace of Christ. And 1,000 years before that was a place where water poured out was made sacred. Because again, three courageous men put their lives at risk. And then three courageous Zoroastrian philosophers put their reputation at risk when they bowed down in front of a, a little crib with a little baby and gave thousands of dollars worth of gifts to a child who couldn't even utter their own name at that point. So I just want to leave you with that this, this Christmas. Courage defines their decisions, but humility is in the soil at Bethlehem. Humility is a part of that big story. And for us, we're invested in the same thing. You see, at Christmas time, when we tell our friends and our family that we're going to church, when we remind them when we say grace at the dinner table, we're telling them that we too have our reputations invested in a little baby. A little baby. Yes, we know a bigger story comes from this. But in that moment of time, it's a child, God's child, that had been prophesied, spoken of, and delivered in a miraculous way. But nonetheless, our courage needs to be evident. Our courage needs to maintain us through this season of faith as we too become those mighty warriors of faith who will, who will fight with the weapons that we've been given, the weapons of love, the weapons of faith, the weapons of humility, to give this story, the opportunity to shine once again. Can we see how that works? And um, something else that sort of excites me, but we haven't got time for it, is that there in that uh, stable on that day, another three appeared, the Trinity, for the first time. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit appear to us. And so Bethlehem becomes the start of another great story. Can you see the beauty of that? Wonderful, eh? Why don't we stand for prayer? Father, indeed, we, we stand in awe of your word that just holds for us incredible stories of how it is that you've evolved your story for us in places that are real in time with people whose names we know with people from other traditions affirming the powerful place of Jesus. And for us, Lord, as we observe these people in courage and humility, come and worship at your feet. We too want to be part of that story. We too want to worship. We too want to align our reputation with the birth of a baby. In doing so, Lord, we, we know we join a multitude of people who have gone before us, people of great faith, people who are just holding on, but people indeed who have put their trust in Jesus. And so we do that today. 
We choose to do that today. By an act of our will, we do that today. And in doing so, Lord, we, we celebrate. We celebrate the birth of Jesus for all that he is and for all that he will be. And for that reason, God, we, we just give you thanks. And we could do nothing more than worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.